How did Christian communities in the past respond to godless cultures? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March is titled Embracing Godly Character, The Christian Community's Response to a Godless Culture. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Embracing Godly Character at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Embracing Godly Character, 1-800-325-3040. Do you know when the Church Fathers were revived? The Reformation. In fact, our Reformers said, we are going back to the Scriptures and the Church Fathers. But the Deliverer is not come until Christmas. The Deliverer doesn't come until Good Friday and Easter. The Deliverer, it's not Saul, it's not even David, it is the Son of David who sits at the right hand of God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, mysteriously, is already working it in us, and we have this promise that by eating the supper, not only are our sins forgiven, but our body and blood are going to become like his body and blood, risen from the grave. Topics you can really sink your teeth into. That's why Iowa dentists love issues, etc. I know that it can feel like a terrible balancing act. On the one hand, you want to protect your children from the culture around us. Even if it weren't a hostile culture, you would still want to protect them from all those things out there in the world that are harmful to them in both body and spirit. At the same time, you're concerned that your child grow up and be, well, they use the term properly socialized, that they are able to interact with people, interact with people who don't believe what they believe and interact with the rest of society. You want to do both of those, but how do you balance them as a Christian parent raising your child in a secular progressive era? How does that balancing act proceed? And is it a long-term goal to protect them all the way through their life. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Wednesday afternoon, the 21st of March. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We continue our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism. Today we're going to talk about teaching engagement with the culture and socialization. Pastor Jonathan Fisk, author of the book Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible, will be our guest. A little bit later in this hour, Dr. Mark Rigneris joins us for part two of our two-part interview on men, women, and the mating market. He's Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Texas in Austin. Hour two of Issues Etc. return to our series on introducing the books of the Bible. Last time with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller, we looked at 1 Samuel. The story only got halfway through. The story of David continues in 2 Samuel, and we find out that, well, David is anointed and made king. He has a covenant with God, but his reign is deeply troubled, deeply, deeply troubled. We'll talk about that with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller in hour two of Issues Etc. Feel free to join us with questions or comments. Our in-studio email address, talkback at issuesetc.org. Our Twitter address, at issuesetc. And the Issues Etc. listener comment line, 618-223-8382. Joining us for part 15 of our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism to talk about teaching engagement with the culture Pastor Jonathan Fisk, senior pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois, host of a radio talk show called Sharper Iron, author of the book called Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible, and a forthcoming publication titled Echo, Unbroken Truth Worth Repeating. Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So this balancing act of trying to 
protect your children, but also see that, as they say, are they're properly socialized. Often Christian parents kind of say, look, I'm going to protect them for as long as I possibly can from the world that I know that is out there that can harm them. Why is that not a reasonable long-term strategy for Christian parents? Well, ultimately, you're not going to be there one way or the other. That's just the way of life in a fallen world. You're going to die and your child's got to stand on their own, right? So coddling or or protecting a child in such a way that they are not capable of engaging and swimming with or against the world, depending on what they need to do with regards to the current of the times, if they're not prepared to do that, then they're going to end up swimming with the world one way or the other. If they are so fragile, so untrained in discernment that they can't discern without you telling them what to do or totally preserving them from what's around them, then they're basically helpless. They're defenseless. It would be like sending somebody into battle after your entire life having a set of four or five guards around them, and then one day they're on their own on the battlefield. What are they going to do? So the task of Christian parenting ultimately is to prepare the child for your own death, right? To prepare the child to stand on his or her own, to prepare him to be a man and to prepare her to be a woman. There really are, I think, three different approaches to, to what you were just saying there a moment. And I think it's important to to recognize that too. I mean, I've heard some Christian parents who, or I maybe I should say I've seen some Christian parents who are doing what you just said, protecting the child so much that they try to shield the child from any threat whatsoever, any uh, disagreement or, or anything that would would challenge whatever the parent doesn't want them to be challenged by. And that's not always the same things, right? Sometimes it's just, I don't want my kids to be in a violent place. Uh, sometimes it's, I don't want my kids to be around those who would teach falsely on this, that, or the other thing. You have, so you have those that are, are really attempting to create an, a brick wall around the child, and preserving them from any interaction. You got the far end of the other side, too, and I've had this told to me by good Lutherans. I don't think they're bad Lutherans. They've said things like, well, you can't protect your children. You just have to, you got to let them grow up sometime. And, and this is defending, you know, sending the child off to, to preschool or to kindergarten at a public school without really much of a thought to it. And while there can be good Christian reasons for and, and, and ways to navigate public school, saying, you can't protect them. They got to grow up sometime. Well, that, that's a that's an abdication of of the job of the parent, right? Yes, you can protect them, and you must protect them. That's in fact what your job is. So, so we don't want to just say uh, don't overprotect. We do need to also say make sure that you do protect. Make sure that you do teach. And then there's this middle where, ideally, we're kind of trying to find a way to not overprotect while protecting, while also training the child to defend and protect his or her own mind. And we're really talking about the mind at this point, although it is also certainly, you know, how you engage the world is going to affect your physical well-being, whether you can provide for your house and your home and all these things going forward as an adult. That's all part of it as well. And in this, you know, what I really want to zoom in on here today as an edge to parenting that I think is lost in all of this, this isn't just about pure discernment of whether or not somebody is teaching you that, say, abortion is right. And you're like, wait, that's wrong. Yes, good. You got it right, child. You know, I want to go beyond that a little bit and talk about what people, I think, normally mean when they talk about socialization and why you need to say one of the big arguments against homeschool is that you need to socialize your children, right? That you have to have them around other kids so that they learn how to behave. And 
I want to emphasize it is important that we do teach our children how to behave with other human beings, both those of their own age bracket and those who are of different ages. I I might even counter that one of my biggest concerns about non-homeschooling is that it tends to raise children that are socially unable to talk to anyone who's not their own age, right? Now, it doesn't have to be that way, and that's kind of a broad brush. But what we do want to do is socialize our children, teach them to be social creatures. Now, I also think it's interesting that the word socialization is a new spin, right? That This is a progressive word here. And we used to use a different word, I think. We used to use the word civilization. We want to civilize our children. And I I think it's a very fascinating question just to let that distinction there shift. Why are we so interested now in socialization and you never really hear us talk as much about civilizing or expecting civil behavior from our children? But that is ultimately what I'm going to advocate here is that part of the task of Christian parenting is civilizing that little monster, yeah, that little beast, uh, that little sinner, that little human. A little person, to civilize that person so that he or she grows up to be a man or woman taking a place in civil society and able to navigate that. And in this, there are a host of challenges, everything from emotional security, being able to withstand criticism or debate or disagreement or those kinds of things, all the way over to whether or not you remember to take a shower and use deodorant, things which Frankly, not everybody teaches their kids to do, and not everybody does, and yet if you you really want to function well in civil society, you need that skill too, right? And in this way, how much of this is indeed flowing out of what St. Paul says pastors must be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I don't want to apply everything that St. Paul says of pastors to every Christian everywhere immediately, but it is true that what he describes that is necessary for the pastoral office or for a man that's entering the pastoral office is sort of a a symbol or a high picture of what all humanity ought to aspire to. And one of the things he says is he must be well thought of by outsiders. And I think what he's getting at there is he's got to be civil. He has to be someone who is able to understand, you know, if I lift up my chin toward you in this culture, it's saying hello, but in that culture, it's actually insulting you. And to, to learn to be able to see the difference and therefore communicate well with others by means of my social or my civil behavior so opening salvo you want to talk about the three estates what are they and why is it so important for christian parents to understand that context when it comes to civilizing their kids yeah i think this is really awesome and awesome uh, pastor wolf miller has turned me on to this three estate thinking and the more I, I let it rattle around the more important it becomes because when we talk about socializing or civilizing our children each of what Luther called these three estates is a different social realm. Like that's the definition of these things. Most Lutherans are familiar with talk of the two kingdoms, church and state, and nothing really wrong with that or the two realms. You might hear it called that way as well. But Luther's use of that theology is far less often than his use of the three estates in talking about kind of the same reality. We tended to dogmatize the two kingdoms talk, but we didn't dogmatize the three estates talk. But it's Wolf Miller's contention, and I think I agree with him, that we would do better to, to be in this kind of thinking more often. So the three estates are church, yes, state or government or whatever we want to call the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of the world. But then he also calls the, the estate of the family, the, the estate of the home, that this is a completely separate thing from, say, the, the kingdom of the left that we normally would call government or, or the kingdom of the world. 
Each of these three ideas, or three, they're not really ideas, they're really places in which humans live, three stations that we all have by nature, church, state, family, they have different civilization skills which are required of us to be in them. In fact, a great number of humans in the world have no church skills because they have no need for forgiveness. They're not baptized, right? They're not even a part of that body, although they may have some form of false religion that attempts to to mimic that. But let's, let's back up and let's just start with the family versus the state, which in our American context, by the way, uh, the government at least, and progressive education really believes that these things are the same, that they're not separated, and that the state does not arise from the family, but quite the other way around, that the state really owns the family. Christianity would say that's not right at all. First off, the state does arise from the family, but secondly, they're even different once that happens. In this sense, the skill set that you train your child to live with and to have, the communication skills which they need in the family, are different than those which they will have in the world. And if I might uh, call on the carpet one of the, the fair critiques of a lot of homeschool that I have seen out there, it's that it doesn't always see the second civilization level as necessary. One of the complaints that, or the reason why some opponents of homeschool will say that homeschool families haven't socialized their children is because the homeschool family only has the children learning their own homeschool civilization, their own home's culture. And they aren't necessarily able to engage or move out into the culture of the state, this culture of the civilization that's around them. And failing to recognize that distinction, it's not that you can't have your own little uh, culture and life in your house. In fact, I hope you do, right? But then to also recognize that to, to actively engage the world around, there's some other rules that might come into play. Now, how you teach this or show this to your children, I think, is, is tremendously challenging. It's not very easy. And I don't, I don't claim to be a master at this. But as an example, one of the things I do try to teach my children is that there is, there is conversation that we can have at the dinner table that's okay if it's just the family, if it's just us seven sitting here. But the moment we're with any other people or with anyone else, now the rules change a little bit. And so one example would be that my kids like to blurt out movie lines and just kind of try to make jokes ham-fistedly whenever they can, because that's what I do too. And I, I exemplify that a little bit. I like to make jokes and just be quirky at dinner and not get too serious about everything. But when we go and, and sit with grandma and grandpa at the dinner table, it's a very different scenario, right? We have different rules for how we engage. And that says we're, we're moving our family out into the broader state society of, of the, the civilization in which we live. So backing up again a little bit, three estates, three different social spheres in which all Christians live. And what I'm advocating here is that part of raising a child is to teach them that each of these places has expectations that other humans require of them in order to be valid participants in that world. If you go out without shirt or shoes and walk into the grocery store, we can't tell you you're not a Christian and we can't tell you that you don't you're not loved by your mother, right? But what we can do is not serve you food, <laughs> right? That's what civilization will say to you. And so finding those rules, discerning what they are in the world outside and then teaching your children to engage them and to, to make use of them. But then also, as you you point out, knowing where those rules disagree with, say, Christianity. So it is impolite in civil society to talk about being pro-life, for example. Well, now we've got two of these estates at, at war with each other, and then the child has to be able to discern, which rule do I follow right now at this moment? 
I just met this person on the street. Do I start a fight and a verbal argument about pro-life cause? Or do I find out who they are first and get to know them according to the rules of civil society in this American system in order to have that conversation later? That kind of true civilization, right? True socialization is a, a penultimate task for Christian parenting because it kind of is the, the broad umbrella on, under which everything else we've talked about really lands. If, if they can't discern the difference between how to behave in the home and how to behave in the city and how to behave in the sanctuary, then we really have failed to make men and women and we have only raised a bunch of boys and girls. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. It's part 15 of our series, Raising Christian Children in an Age of Secular Progressivism. Today we're talking about teaching engagement with the culture. When we come back, well, this is something that's going to change as the children get older. The, the kind of cover of protect, protection pulls back a little bit, and that engagement increases. We'll talk about that after this. Take a good look at your friends, yeah. That's a company you keep. They got what's coming at you from all directions. You got look before you leave. Take a good look at your what we need to know about Islam is that it's the world's fastest growing religion and the only significant religious system in the history of the human race with a socio-political structure of laws that mandate violence against the infidel. Hank Canagraf of the Bible Answer Man talking about his presentation at the 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The current narrative is that if you tell the truth in this regard, well, you'll radicalize Muslims. But that's pure propaganda. What we need to do is wake up to the truth concerning Islam. You can meet and hear Hank Hanegraaff making the case against Islam at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 8th and Saturday, June 9th in Collinsville, Illinois. Collinsville is 15 miles east of St. Louis. Learn more and register at issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the language of medicine and law today. Visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR17. Memoria Press, a classical Christian education that works. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. It's the latest in our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism today, teaching engagement with the culture. I want to play two things off uh, each other. What you were just saying, talking about that the parents introducing the children to the culture rather than letting the culture introduce itself 
to the children. And that's a difficult one. I think that's where a lot of people fall into that trap of saying, well, you can't protect them forever. So maybe the best thing to do is just toss them in the deep end and see how well they sink or swim. Most sensible parents realize that they have to do the introductions. How does that happen? When does that begin where the child starts, the parent starts to intentionally say, all right, junior, the world out there is not entirely like the world in here. For I, I can't really speak for everyone, but I, I have to say, to me, it, it would seem, no matter what, it happens right away, immediately, even with an infant. And let me kind of give you an example of this. I, I know others have sat in this same scenario before, but I remember it vividly, this one time that it happened, when my family and I were out to dinner with my, my father and my mother, and it was sort of a, we had gone to visit them, you know, it was a, a, not that we, we don't get to do this every weekend kind of thing. And we, we were at this restaurant, we were sitting in the back, we we're having a good time, and there was another family just a few tables over, and I was watching the child, who probably was about one year old at that point, just refuse to do light in any way, shape, or form. Screaming, yelling, throwing food, slapping his father in the face, uh, beating him on a, on the chest. The father just kind of sat there and, and let it all happen. And the mother pretty much ignored them both, although my wife did told me earlier that the father, I didn't see this apparently, but the father had at one or two times attempted to restrain the child a little bit and had been uh, evil-eyed down by his wife very quickly for doing so, and then he returned to his proper position of, of not doing anything quickly after that. And this this behavior, it wasn't just at that table. It wasn't like I was bored with my family and looking at them. It, it, it was disturbing the entire room. It, everybody in the room, it, no matter who they were, were, were kind of like shoulders hunched up, neck down a little bit, looking askance, like, will you please do something to, for, with your child? Talk to them, right? Oh, make them aware that what they're doing actually is doing something. And it got me thinking a little bit about how this, not only is this not teaching the child that there are rules for sitting at table with other human beings, right? That, look, we, we don't behave this way with each other. But it got me thinking a little bit about how, imagine now that we're not all in a restaurant living nice together. Now we're all off in the wild, and you have an infant, not even a one-year-old yet, can't really throw a fit, but you have an infant that decides that while you're journeying through this forest, he's going to scream at the top of his lungs needlessly. You need to teach this child to hush, lest you perhaps endanger the entire tribe, right? That there is a rule for behavior that isn't just about human engagement, right? This is about life engagement. This is about survival and protection. So, this is all to illustrate and to advocate that it begins immediately. It begins immediately. With this, it doesn't mean you you yell at the child who's an infant, shut up, right? That's not going to work. But there does need to be communication taking place early on to demonstrate what has to be learned behavior. That we do this here, we don't do this there. This is appropriate. This is not appropriate. And I guarantee you that if you don't do some of this, if you never teach learned behavior, what they're going to do is selfishness constantly, right? They're going to grow up pure narcissists, just demanding what they want. And the more that they then engage others who simply bully or return weakness to bullying, the more that kind of demanding, or again, imagine this child that from that dinner table, willing to hit, scream, yell, pout, cry, give me my way, no matter what, 
the only time they ever then learn otherwise, you know, you think you're protecting your child by not hurting their feelings when they're one. The time that they learn otherwise is when they're on a playground at age eight or 12 and they get punched in the face by someone who doesn't stop because they're not going to deal with it, right? Or maybe they get to be 19, 20, 21, and they get arrested. And now there are consequences because there's rules to life and you don't think they apply to you, but they do. From the very beginning to demonstrate that I and you, child, have rules of engagement. And I, as parents, I'm going to try to to do these gently. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to hurt you, right? But I have to also teach you that there is appropriate and there is inappropriate. And, and this can be as simple as hushing and quieting the child, which we've always done it with our children to, to try to, to pretty much keep them from being loud for too long or to take them out and give them a stern talking to about that. And yet, as we do that, treating them at a higher level than they really are, right? We don't, when we were talking to our infants, we don't have any infants anymore. Um, but when we would talk to our infants, we would talk to them. We wouldn't try to treat them as if they couldn't understand. We would expect them to understand that they're going to learn from our emotion and our behavior, what we mean anyway. And we are going to socialize them as adults from the very beginning. And so taking that tact, whatever it is that you actually do, start it right away. Don't wait. And then as life comes and it will, it will present you with manifold opportunities for these kinds of conversations. They're just going to be everywhere. Your child comes home from school. So-and-so did this to me today, right? Well, there you go. You got an opportunity to talk about whether it was appropriate or not and what's the right response or not, right? How do you uh, how do you engage a world that plays by different rules than you do, right? It's not the way our family acts, but in our world, that's okay for people to act that way. The teachers don't stop it, so they think it's okay. How do we engage this? Yeah, And well, again, one of the places that this hasn't happened often enough for conversation is in the church and how we do have rules for engagement as congregations, as people of God, as people baptized into Christ. And to illustrate that point, all I got to do is ask you to go to a voter assembly sometime and, and see how different the behavior is there from the preaching of the Ten Commandments um, and how we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Voters assemblies tend to lead us into demanding and complaining and fighting and, and being disgruntled at the, at the best, right? So there certainly is a Christian virtue and a Christian estate, a Christian civilization that is founded in really the mercy of Jesus, but the Ten Commandments come into play as well, that we also have to learn to engage. And this this does deal with being born again of water and the Spirit. This certainly is why we practice closed communion. The idea is that it is not open to the entire world. This is this is for Christians. This is what the liturgy provides for us as a culture and a set of rules for how we pray and for learning to pray, that we all would pray the same prayer. Not that we have to be verbatim everywhere all the time, but that we would have the same spirit. And, you know, revivalism, by the way, going on a tangent here, but revivalism, uh, there's a reason that Luther called the enthusiasts of a different spirit because it does seem to change that culture and that estate. In any case, all of this to try to get back to your question, when do you start? You start immediately. You never stop. It's always present. But the danger would be to reckon, or to, to fail to recognize it's a task you have, right? To be that father or that mother sitting there just assuming the kid's going to learn to be civil on his own. One day he'll stop hitting you in the face. Well, no. <laughs> your task is to teach him not to hit people in the face for his own sake so he doesn't get hit in the face later by someone much bigger and stronger than he is. How do we communicate to our children the idea, with about a minute or so here before we take a break, the idea that they're going to have to learn eventually, which is as members of this family and as members of the body of Christ, so those two estates, family and church, you will always be to one degree or another 
running against the grain of the culture we live in. You will be a stranger here. So how do we teach that? Yeah. How, do, how do we begin to Im- imply that or to, to bring that upon them? Yeah, I, I don't know. Again, I, I would default to liturgy a little bit there. The argument against having liturgy in church for the last 50 years has usually gone along the lines of the world doesn't understand it and the kids don't like it. I, I'll, let's let the second one slide for a moment. The kids don't like anything you don't actually teach them or show interest in yourself. So, you know, okay, fine. But that the world doesn't like it. Well, see, that's actually a winning point for me. This is a good reason to keep something, that it, it makes us look different to the world, that we stand apart, that the visitor comes in off the street and they have no idea what's going on. But the child who is raised within it knows it intuitively and, and experiences that difference viscerally. And all, this really struck me one time when I was sitting waiting for a, a subway in New York. And I saw, he had to be 10, 11, 12 years old, young Hebrew boy, young Jewish boy. And he had on his, I don't know all the proper terminology, he had on his hat, a little hat. He had his hair on the side of his head long and it was twisted in the, in the little uh, curls that they do. And he had on his prayer shawl as well over what otherwise were fairly normal looking American teenager clothing. And I remember looking at that kid, and he looked fine. He wasn't embarrassed. He knew exactly who he was. And I was, I was jealous. I was jealous of his culture's ability to convince him that it was better to be who he was than to have to change to be like someone else. That, that child's going to be Jewish the rest of his life. Now, maybe he converts to Christianity and, and in that sense comes to the true faith. But nonetheless, his Jewish culture, it's powerful. It's strong, right? So where is the culture that we have as Christians and then particularly as sola scriptura, Reformation, Lutheran Christians? It is in the liturgy, not, and I don't mean here the organ, I mean the rights that we have inherited from Jesus as central to our identity, the right of baptism and baptismal remembrance and absolution that points you back to your baptism, the right of gathering to hear the word of God preached and taught and exhorted from and proclaimed and promised upon, and then the feast that we participate in, which defines us as distinct from the world. And as the ancient church has handed to us foreign, sacred, those are the same word really, implements to this, uh, taking the words and the songs and, and holding them so long that they go out of style. So also we have this grand and broader culture that extends beyond all these things. So to have that be the, that would, for me, that's the place I start with. How do I teach my children that Christianity looks different? We're weird in this way. We go to a place every week where we stand in a tradition that has stood since Jesus rose and ascended and will stand until he returns. And everything else that we do from there, whether it's in the family or in the state as we, we leave our homes, flows from. That identity, which is baptismal, which is communal, right, uh, corporately unified with Jesus, and which is founded ultimately upon the, the sola scriptura power of words that will never pass away, even though state family do pass away. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. It's our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism, talking about teaching engagement with the culture. Ten more minutes with him on the other side of the break. Then Dr. Mark Regnerish will join us to talk about men, women, and the mating market, part two of that interview with him. And Pastor Brian Wolf Miller will be with us in hour two to introduce the book of the Bible, Second Samuel. You can do this hard thing. You can do this hard thing It's not easy, I know 
God is a pietist. Do Lutherans fast? When our faith and our feelings go to war, who wins? Can a hymnal enrich your prayer life? What can medieval pilgrims teach Christians today about devotion? Find answers to these questions and more in the March issue of The Lutheran Witness. Subscribe to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's flagship magazine at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran Christian perspective. Thanks to generous supporters, tuition for all incoming residential pastoral ministry and deaconess students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, will be paid in full. Hi, this is Dr. Lawrence Rast, president of Concordia Theological Seminary. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess in the 2018-19 academic year at ctsfw.edu. Have you ever wanted to better understand philosophy and its impact on your family, your church, or your world, but didn't know where to begin? Concordia University, Wisconsin has an innovative, free online course for you entitled Philosophy Kata Christan. These six engaging video sessions are taught by noted Lutheran philosopher, lecturer, author, and pastor, Dr. Gregory Scholz. Learn more by clicking the Kata Christan logo at issuesetc.org, issuesetc.org. This is Pastor Philip Hauser with Lamb of God Lutheran Church in Papillion, Nebraska. We're faithful to the Lutheran confessions as recorded in the Book of Concord, and our services are traditional Eucharistic liturgies in accordance with the ancient texts Saturday evening and Sunday morning. If you're ever in Omaha, come visit us. We're on Lincoln Street between 84th and 96th in Papillion. Our website is lambofgodlcms.org. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. For 28 years, I had the privilege of serving as a chaplain in the United States Navy. Dr. Dan Gard, retired Rear Admiral and President of Concordia University Chicago on the need for military chaplains. During that time, I was able to bring word and sacrament to so many young people and their families, our sons and daughters spread throughout the world. Truly a privilege and an honor, and today... There are other chaplains that must follow. We need more LCMS chaplains in all branches of the military. It's an incredible, amazing mission opportunities to go to places no other pastor can go, but to go with the same tools that any other pastor brings wherever he goes, word and sacrament. You can find out more about the vocation of military chaplain at lcms.org slash armed forces. The LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces lcms.org slash armed forces. Welcome back to Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. That's our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism, talking about engaging the culture, teaching our children to engage 
the culture. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. A beautiful dovetail with this topic is the theme of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March, Embracing Godly Character, the Christian Community's Response to a Godless Culture. You can find out more about this great handbook for a Christian's life in the 21st century at our website, issuesetc.org, on every page of the website, or call Concordia Publishing House and order Embracing Godly Character, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Fisk, I want you to take, in the few minutes that are left to us here, about five minutes or so, if you would take us into the Colossians passage that you have listed here about walking wisely among men. And we've referenced this passage a couple of times throughout this series, dealing with the fact that the days are evil, right? And that we we live in a time where we have to not be ignorant of what's going on around us. And in that sense, it's, it's really one of my favorite ideas in Scripture, to, to make the best use of the time, to see that this world, even though it's broken, still is designed by God, still functions in large part, although with all sorts of thorns and thistles, and that we are not to simply say, oh, well, nothing works, I just got to deal with it, Jesus will come back soon, but we're exhorted to, to stand in the midst of it, to stand against it in, in many senses as well, and to pursue a path for the sake of the good, whether that's the good of the family, whether that's the good of the state, whether that's the good of the church. But what I find interesting about that language showing up here in Colossians 4, 5, is that when he says, walk in wisdom, he has this other word thrown in from 1 Timothy chapter 3, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And again, to me, this emphasizes that for the Christian, for the church, we recognize that our estate is not the same as all the others, and that there are different rules, And he's not exhorting us to go out and be evil, right? Be all things to all people does not mean go be evil. But he is exhorting us to recognize those differences and to see them. And so when in Rome, in some ways, to do as the Romans do, to to indeed become all things to all people, to understand that even though I might think it's perfectly fine to wear this kind of clothing no matter what, I may also find myself in a culture where that's the inappropriate thing to do. Or say, for example, and this is a conversation that I think most parents are familiar having with their daughters in some form or another, you might really be comfortable in that pair of shorts, but that pair of shorts is not appropriate for going outside. (laughs) And it's going to send the wrong message. It's going to attract men you don't want attracted to you yet and or maybe ever. So where you apply this idea can be many and varied. But the idea that there are outsiders to the church and outsiders to your family, yeah, and that the task of Christian parenting is to raise your children to walk in wisdom toward those who are not within the family, not in a way which would harm, right, but for the good of the neighbor, and yet also in a way that recognizes the dangers that the world does pose out there, so that you don't run around screaming in the forest as if whoever's out there is necessarily going to want to help you. It might do the opposite thing as well. So, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And, and I think 1 Thessalonians 5.14 applies here, too, where he just says generally that we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This task and the entire task of Christian parenting is, is very much summed up right there, right? It's not do nothing, and it's don't give up. It is we are weak, and we need to grow, 
We need to have weakened arms or, or unlearned hands trained to be strong. But this is all done patiently. This is done knowing it's, it's a long journey. And none of us are perfect. None of us are going to be perfect. But it is a problem if we stop trying, if we stop learning, if we stop growing, if we stop believing that it's even possible to train up a child in the way he should go, to teach discernment and wisdom and an understanding that in each of these estates, they have a place to stand and be who God has called, chosen, and redeemed them to be. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is senior pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois. He hosts a radio talk show called Sharper Iron. Author of the book, Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible, and a forthcoming book titled Echo, Unbroken Truth Worth Repeating. Jonathan, thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to continue a conversation we began a few days ago with Dr. Mark Regneris, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Texas, Austin, on men, women, and the mating market. We're going to talk about his predictions for the next decade or so for the future of the sexual revolution. Stay tuned. Spiritual and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Emily finally had to face the truth. Her church choir was a mess. Katie Schuerman from her new audiobook, House of Living Stones. Sure, they'd managed to turn out a few decent choral offerings for Sunday worship every now and then, but their confidence and morale were presently hanging lower than pants on a wrapper. You can purchase and download an audio version of the novel House of Living Stones at Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. House of Living Stones by Katie Schuerman. 